You're listening to 100 Words or Less with Ray Harkins. Howdy, howdy, howdy. How is it going for you today, this evening, this morning, whenever it is you are stuffing this podcast into your head? I'm grateful to be here because, um, you know, like there's a lot of other places you could be, but you are deciding to spend time with this person, with independent music, and just becoming more immersed in this amazing scene that we call punk, hardcore, indie rock, whatever it is, but it's all of that independent variety. And this person is a lifer, and he's a friend of mine, and I wanted to have him on, and we were able to sync up because he has a new band, but I'll tell you about that in a moment. His name is Carl Hensel. He runs a company called King's Road Merch that uh, splintered off from uh, Epitaph Records, but uh, they basically they are e-commerce for bands, and they print merch for bands, and they do their stores, and they do a bunch of cool things. You have undoubtedly ordered something from King's Road Merch, and uh, you know if you've pre-ordered anything from Epitaph, but then they also do a bunch of other bands. And he uh, he runs the thing, and it's uh, it's a lot <laughs> because you know you can imagine that there's a lot of uh, stressful things that happen within the band merchandise world. And uh, Carl's been running that ship for a while, but he also worked at Bridge Nine Records. Uh, he also played in bands like Martyr and Holding On, a great Minneapolis straight edge hardcore band that put out some records on. Uh, on Havoc and also Bridge Nine as well. But uh, like I said, he's a lifer. And uh, I became fast friends with him. And he has a new project, or band, I would call it, called Desperate Acts. They released a full length. You can find it on any streaming provider. I'll play a little bit of one of their songs as we head into the interview. But it's a really good thing. Done by old punkers. In, and I mean that very affectionately, not like, you know, dated punk rock, but um, it's really cool. It's, uh, I, I, I really enjoyed it when he sent it to me, and we were able to make this interview happen, and we kind of bounce all over the place, but ultimately showcasing that the world of independent music, there is no straight line. Like, you are constantly zigging and zagging and taking different experiences to be able to uh, work with something that you're passionate about. And that's exactly what Carl's done. And I get stoked when people do that and stick to it. Because, uh, you know, there's a lot of <laughs> a lot of off-ramps for people to uh, go in regards to independent music and finding a career out of it. Because, you know, this, this is, you, you don't come here to get rich. <laughs> That is that is for absolute certain. Like you can be comfortable, and that can be cool. But uh, you know, if you're looking for the hedge fund millions, like you are not, you're not barking up the right tree. But, anyways, um, you can always email the show one hundred words podcast at gmail dot com. Leave those reviews in Apple Podcasts. I pay attention to that. It helps the show. All of those things. But ultimately, tell your friends and tell the people who should know about this podcast. Because, um, you know, there's 470 some odd episodes to dive back into. I really like, like when I look at the stats of the show, the new episodes, of course, always get a significant amount of traffic, but the amount of people that listen to all of the previous conversations, like it's pretty staggering. You know, it's honestly probably like a 70, 30% split. 30% of people are diving into the new episode or 30% of people are diving into the old episodes and 70% are kind of following along week after week. But it's just really cool. And I, I, I love that. I like that people are joining, leaving, coming back, <laughs> know that this thing is here like a damn cockroach. <laughs> but anyways, here's Carl. 
Here is a great conversation, uh, and this is really insightful if you want to figure out how to, quote-unquote, make it within the independent music scene. There's a lot of ways to do it, as you will see by Carl's story. So here we go, and plus, check out his band, Desperate Axe. Here is a bit of their song as we head into the interview. Martinis in a pickle jar A tea time, one tea time too far A weekend drowning in Duluth Pulling out your rotten tooth Another night I wanna know How deep these rotten roots can grow You know, honestly, I was trying to reflect on when we first ran across each other, but I'm fairly certain it was at uh, King's Road. But I was... uh, I was immediately taken by you just based on the fact that, you know, like myself, you obviously have been through a bunch of different music industry experiences, but then there was also just that kind of like no nonsense nature where it's just like, oh, we're on the same page immediately. But then we also have that kind of like, oh yeah, like let's, let's get the stuff that we're trying to do done as well. Um, do you, I, I guess like existing in all these different iterations of the music industry from obviously playing in the band and doing the merch stuff and label managing all this, like, do you, I guess, still get that feeling when you do run into people that uh, have, you know, similar backgrounds to, uh, you know, you and I have been raised within this particular scene? Absolutely. I mean, I think, you know, as, as this world has kind of come along, I think I've always like people who know me socially know that I'm pretty quick to be, a loudmouth a lot of times and like really you know overly conversational i definitely talk too much um if it's a group of people that i'm trusted with but i think the one thing that's funny for me as i've kind of navigated this world of the music industry as i you know most of it was always on accident and just out of pure necessity you know it was never out of uh there's never a grand plan and uh the people that i think i find i get along with best especially like you know, I'm about to turn 40. So I feel like I've hit sort of that midlife moment where it's like, this is really all I've done as an adult. Um, I would say the people who have spent time in vans and the people like in the, and you come across this, I'm sure in your world, like you'll come across people every once in a while where it's like, you know, that they know where you came from, right? You know, that you could like slip in a conversation every once in a while, you'll meet somebody where it's like, not even just like, Oh, I'm going to make a gorilla biscuits reference or something but like, we could nerd out about, you know, dead guy, you know what I mean? Or some, some other kind of like deeper cut. And like the people I feel like I get along with best, you know, unintentionally are people who have toured in vans and played crappy shows and just kind of like endured and survived and came across this. And the people I find that I have the hardest time really kind of meshing with beyond just like the basics of like responding to an email and being polite and civil, um, you know, the people who haven't gone through that kind of cauldron and that kind of life over years and years and years, I just don't think I have the same ability to relate to them. And, uh, you know, it, it really is sort of like a, like a, it's like almost, it's like fight club or something where you just kind of look and you're like, Oh, you know, you know, like where I'm actually coming from. Like I've had, I've had bands that we've recruited and, you know, like one of our, one of our longer running clients now on the King's road side is Papa Roach. And I remember the first time I met them, you know, it's like, I know, obviously I knew who Papa Roach was, you know what I mean? And I knew their history and I knew their bands, but I didn't know that their drummer that's been in the band since like 2008 was also in 10 foot pole and scared straight. And they like, and he almost, he was drumming for good riddance for a while before, 
comprehensive guide came out on FEM. And so just like having these conversations, also I was like, oh shit, like I could talk with you on a whole different level, um, just about music and just hardcore and punk and whatever. So I feel like that that's the world of the music industry that's always kind of, you know, wandered around is like these these people who come from hardcore and punk is just sort of like a hidden thing. And I feel like I can get along really well with them. Yeah, no, I think you articulated that well, especially the idea that, especially the, you know, circuitous path that you have taken to where you are currently from a, you know, work perspective is the idea that there are people that literally go to school to work in the music industry. And then there's people that don't. And so like when you, when you run across a person who loves music and they just want to work in the music industry and it's always interesting for people like you and I, who came at it from the complete backdoor side of things. And then being like, wait, so like you just like music, you just want to work at a label. Like you don't necessarily like, I mean, they care about what they're working, but it's definitely less precious to them. Right. And I think like, I mean, uh, when I was working at Bridge Nine back when I was in Boston, um, somebody from the Berkeley College of Music reached out to me and they wanted me to come in and speak in one of their classes. And like in my my personal education, like, you know, when I was playing in a band and I realized I don't I just want to tour like that's what I want to do. But I wanted to make sure that I finished college just to get that out of the way. And so I was in the business school at the University of Minnesota, which had a really well-regarded business school, and it still does. But I'm around these people. I'm just like, I don't have anything in common with these people at all. I don't want to spend the rest of my life engaging with these people. And I got a real chip on my shoulder. And so the guy at Berkeley was like asking me about my background before I came into his music business class and spoke. And I, I told him, like, I don't know what I'm going to say. You know, when I was younger. I was in my mid to late 20s. So I was actually pretty close to graduating college at that point. And I was just like, I... I have a business school dropout, technically. Like, what do you want me to say to these people about how to get into the music industry? Like, my path is really just kind of, you know, happenstance and, and circumstance. You know, just these things just kind of happened. And mostly because I made sure to pay my bills and not be a total jerk to people, just one step leads to the next. And uh, I just, you know, I'm not trying to take anything away from anybody who's gone through that music business kind of formal training. But it's like outside of being a lawyer, so much of that world is just, you know, maybe a recording engineer, but so much of that world is just doing it over and over and over again and not knowing where it's going to lead at first, you know, and that, that really is the best training, you know, that's really the, like so many of the people at King's Road that we have, like all of our key people are, um, you know, all of our key people at King's Road come from the band life, you know, one of the guys who runs our tours, does all of our touring stuff for our big tours, he was in Polar Bear Club. And our head accountant was actually also in Polar Bear Club too. And so it's these people who come from bands and they're just smart and they're versatile and they can learn things quickly. But there's no college degree that trains you for that stuff. But they're the ones who have lasted the longest at the company and the, the ones that, you know, fit into the world that we're in. Yeah. Well, it, to your point, people are getting it on multiple levels. They know what it's like to, you know, operate on the, we got to print. 24 t-shirts because we order by the dozen and like, like we ought to do that. Right. But then we also know how to, you know, do this massive, you know, online merch launch. And then we got to drop ship all over the place and all that other stuff. So yeah, I, I totally get it. And we'll pull some of those threads a little bit later, but you specifically as a person were, um, were you born and raised in the Minneapolis area? Where'd you come up? Yeah, I was, I was born. My parents still live in the house I was born in. 
Um, they live in a little corner right off of Northeast Minneapolis and they've been in that house since 1974. And so, you know, that was Minneapolis the whole time and just kind of wandered my way through it. You know, I was pretty lucky to grow up in Minneapolis when I did just because the, the world of that sort of post, I mean, it was happening before, you know, the real big explosions of, you know, Green Day and all that stuff. Um, but just Minneapolis was a great city to grow up in. You know, it was uh, such a lucky time to be here. And, you know, even going back, there was just this really strong musical culture, both kind of big room, kind of First Avenue level, and then kind of on down to the basement scene that was so accessible at the time. So I grew up here and didn't really, uh, never really wanted to leave. But as life kind of went on, I mean, I was gone for about 11 years, but I always wanted to come back. And uh, fortunately, I was able to. Right. It, it, I do think I'm glad you mentioned the, the diverse scene that existed in the, you know, Minneapolis area, because I do think that it gets real short shrift in regards to whatever the general music world, uh, you know, even from an independent perspective, like people know that it's an important music scene and clearly attached to a college town and stuff, but like just the wide breadth of everything from you know havoc records to you know obviously bob mold and husker do it like all just all of that stuff it's so interesting to kind of look at it through the microcosm of that but then you were experiencing it kind of firsthand so did i mean you recognize the diversity but was it like could you go to like i guess all of those shows and like no one is is feeling a certain way about like oh what do you mean you're going to a basement show and then you know a show at the triple rock or whatever oh totally i mean i think i mean i was I had no business kind of being at some of these shows that I would go to. I mean, I was, I was 14 years old and I told my parents I was spending the night at my friend's house because my friend's parents had just had a divorce. And so his dad had an apartment that was really close to three houses near the university that did shows. And so like, I'd go to these shows and I'd be wearing, you know, good, I mean, it would have been like a Gorilla Biscuits shirt or something, you know, and uh, showing up at these shows and just like the, the biggest, baggiest, you know, skate radius clothing I could possibly wear. And I'm going to these these basement shows with like Dillinger Four and The Strike, who's kind of this really kind of classic 77 style mod punk band, kind of clash and jam and whatever. And they're all grown adults, you know? Um, but I think even at the time, just pre-internet really being a factor, Minneapolis is pretty isolated. You know, I mean it's it's seven hours from Chicago. And so to get up here, you really had to make an intentional move to get up here. So there was that, that sort of feeling that we just kind of had to make shows ourselves, you know? And I think that always kind of went back. I mean, I think Husker Du kind of spawned from that. I think a lot of bands that, that were from that era, and then even going on to Dillinger 4 and Atmosphere, um, you know, Lifter Polar, who was before Hold Steady, before they moved to New York. But there was so much, so many opportunities to see bands like, I mean, Atmosphere and Dillinger 4 play together frequently. And you just think about that now, it's like that, that kind of show is like really reserved only for festivals. But, uh, you know, one of like Dillinger four promise ring and disembodied played a show together. And I right. can't imagine there's, there's, you know, I mean, and they, those shows existed in, you know, I mean, I see, I've seen flyers for shows like the pickle patch and stuff like that, where you know the living room where they, they have that sort of hybrid nature. And those shows did exist in other parts of the country, but I just think Minneapolis had such a, you know, I don't want to say a chip on its shoulder, but just the winters up here, it's like, there's not bands that are touring up here in the winter and the ones that do are few and far between. So you just kind of have to create it yourself. And I think that's sort of that, that sort of nature has, is why, you know, I mean, Rhyme Sayers is still a huge label, you know, and they've always just kind of done their own thing. 
And I just think there's a lot of places that don't have that same experience of isolation where it's like when bands from out of town would come up here, it's actually a really big deal. Um, you know, and yeah. Cause really it was so, cause right. You know, you're, I, and I think the intentionality of what you're talking about where it's like, it wasn't a through way for people to get to one place or another. It was like, if we want to get up there, we have to deliberately build our schedule around that. And I know that sounds so obvious, but that is, that is the truth when you're talking about all of these geographical implications. And then plus on top of that, where it's like, yo, avoid anything above, you know, the 48th parallel during the winter. Cause it's terrible. Right. Right. And I mean, that was the other thing. I mean, I, you know, going to shows like the first shows, but some of the first shows I played out of town were in Winnipeg and Winnipeg is even more isolated than us. They're seven hours from here. And so you figure like they're 14 hours from Chicago and Winnipeg is a smack in the middle of Canada. And so there's just this sort of camaraderie and, and, you know, shared experience, I suppose, of just like, well, we're all we got. So you'd have these shows and, you know, we'd play with a grindcore band and then we'd play with a death metal band. And then like we'd play with figure four who at the time I was just like vehemently opposed to, cause I just, I was, I was that kid in the mid nineties who just like hated everything Christian hardcore reflexively. It was just like, bam right. against it. It's, I was just, I was there. And obviously I became close friends with those guys later on in life, but there was just this sort of environment where it's like, what other era are you going to have like a Christian hardcore band, a death metal band, a youth crew pop, like a hardcore band and then a pop punk band all in the same show. It's like, well, that's what you had to do. Like that was just the world that you were in. Um, yeah. And it, was, okay. so it, was, it was, it was a, it was a really cool spot to grow up. And I, I, you know, the shows that you guys would have in Southern California, you'd always see this stuff. And it's like, there was literally a show every night. Um, if you were into a variety of, you know, this punk subculture between hardcore or whatever, like you could go see a show multiple times a week with kick-ass bands every night. Um, but we just didn't have that, you know, that, yeah. that experience wasn't ours. For sure. That makes sense. And your, uh, like your family structure, brothers and sisters in the house, or was it just you and your mom and your dad? Uh, I have an older brother. Uh, he's, he was four grades ahead of me, so we were never in high school at the same time. Um, a fairly predictable and boring life for the most part. I mean, my parents come from pretty crazy backgrounds, more or less. I mean, it's, you know, on the surface, it's all typical Midwestern. And my mom grew up on like a pretty hardcore socialist farming community. And, uh, my dad comes from a pretty crazy family coming out of Wisconsin. So our little bubble was just very normal, you know, um, looking back on it, but you know, in that, in that same regard, like sometimes that predictable normalcy is what creates the desire to find those things in a weird way. But, uh, of course, you know, of course. my brother, my brother was like, you know, captain of the football team and, you know, he did have a pretty diverse range of musical interests. I mean, for as much bullying as he did, as I started discovering punk and getting into that stuff, it's like, I realized very early on, like he was the reason I was listening to the misfits in fifth grade. And that purely comes from Metallica. Like there was no, nothing else there, but I kind of, I was, I was sort of like a piggyback on him whenever he, you know, Metallica Black album comes out and he went to the store and got it for me, you know, uh, like all those big 1991 records, you know, like the, the use your illusions. He went to the store and waited in line and bought, he actually, we bought two copies so that I didn't have to share his. And that was like, he, so he looked out for me in certain ways, you know, he introduced me to Iron Maiden. He was like, you know, we'd always fight about the, that dumb stuff. We were just far enough apart where we never really had too much overlap. Um, but you know, he's the reason, he's the reason I like Iron Maiden. Um, right. He, he wasn't <laughs> necessarily there. He wasn't there for the punk stuff, but, uh, 
you know, in one indirect way or another. I mean, it's like he was there for, you know, like I discovered Pantera at the same time he did, you know? So it's like, there's things like that heavy music side of, I guess, being the football captain where that was uh, stuff that kind of set me on the path, I would say. Sure. Sure. I, I really, really like the, uh, the detail there of buying two CDs. Like that's so crucial where it wasn't like this constant fight of like, Hey, give me, give me back. Use your illusion one. Cause like <laughs> I got to listen to this or whatever. Well, that was, that was such a, a prime. Cause we had just got, we just, our house just got a CD player like that summer. And I still remember the first CD I bought with my own money. Cause I was the only kid in our neighborhood at the time. Like my parents, the neighborhood had all turned over. So it was all old people at the time. And so we were the only kids, but I shoveled driveways and mowed lawns. And so I was making pretty good money for a kid my age with just no bills. So when we got a CD player, in the house, I remember the first CD I bought was uh, Slave to the Grind. Um, and I stumbled into it. I was somehow conned my way into getting the, uh, the vulgar version. And now I can't even remember. I think the song was like, get the fuck out of the song. I forget the name of the song even at this point, but there was, a, there was two versions of that record. And uh, when he went out, it was a huge deal because like Metallica Black Album, like I'm not sharing. Um, you know, Guns N' Roses, I'm not sharing. Like that was the whole, that was a huge deal in the house. So sorry, my, uh, my dogs are saying hi to each other. But um, oh, that's fine. yeah, it just, it was, it was a, it, it was a, it was an interesting moment to look back on because some of that stuff is still. I mean, when Iron Maiden plays in the area, it's like I'll buy my brother tickets. Like that's my gift to him for like showing me some of those early doors. You know. Sure, absolutely. And so, when you started to kind of develop your identity, as it were, what did you? Uh, I mean, I know obviously music played a large part of it, but what were you? kind of trying to sample around in and, you know, junior high and high school, like, were you going down the sports route? Did you care about school? Where'd you find yourself? I've, I've always been an athlete. I've always enjoyed playing sports. I played basketball and soccer a lot growing up. I mean, I played high school basketball. Um, I played pretty high level competitive basketball up until the rest of the world grew past me and I kind of stayed short, you know, but um, I think music just always was there. You know, I mean, even going like, I, it just, it's always been a part of, the background it's always like i can tie specific memories going back to like you know first and second grade specifically around music that was going on at the time you know um, like i remember getting my first set of appetite for destruction as like a very specific summer memory so music was always it was like i kind of had two lives in a way like sports was always there but then music was always kind of a non-negotiable part of that and i think as uh you know, just kind of as you're, you're finding yourself in the world and finding your identity and sort of figuring out, I mean, I was in a fairly small school, but I was really close to, I was right next to Minneapolis and my parents' house is like two blocks outside of the Minneapolis city border. So Minneapolis was just sitting there and it's like, I could, you just knew there was a bigger world out there. And so for me, like once, you know, for me, it was the summer where I discovered bad religion and then discovering there's this whole other world connected to it. And, uh, you know, then stumbling into Rancid and NoFX and Pennywise and, all those bands at that era and then finding out there's this whole other net of bands that that leads you to, you know, that it takes you to minor threat and then it takes you to, you know, dead nasty and all these things. And for me, it was just, once that happened, it was like, that was just my, my focus, you know, but I still played basketball the whole time and I skateboarded, but then, you know, music was always kind of lingering. So, you know, the, the, where I guess where I had to make the decision, but whether I'm going to pursue music or, or sports, I guess was probably my, senior year of high school when I just decided it's like, yeah, no, like 
I've already, I'd already done a week of like my parents let me do a week of shows, you know, before my senior year of high school. So I was piled in a van playing hardcore shows across the Midwest. And like, I'm not going to go play sports in college. Like there's no fucking way. Right. So, right. Was that, was, uh, was, was that first tour with, or maybe not your first tour. Was that with holding on or someone else? Yeah, that was with holding on. Um, Got it. And looking back on it, I mean, it's just like, we had no business doing those shows. We played with like, you know, we played a show with Gordon Sully motherfuckers and no justice in Cleveland. And it's <laughs> like, what are us four dorks even belonging? We didn't belong on that stage whatsoever. You know what I mean? Um, yeah, right. But that was, you know, so you look back, like, so it goes, like, I'm still grateful for it. I mean, I still, the, the fact that you know, like we did, we did a handful of shows with no justice. And then I think was that that same summer was the, uh, fast break saves the day tour. Oh, I yeah. say. So the summer of 99. So I think we played two shows or three shows with them. Um, and after that, I was just like, I'm not like, there's no way I can pursue anything else in my life. Like I just, this is my focus. This has to be, this, this is my way, you know? Um, yeah, of course. Well, especially too, because I, I think you really, you know, why so many of us gravitate towards this idea of creating music and playing in bands is because that's really the first area that you feel that authorship and autonomy away from not only what your parents have done and are doing, but then your peers are just like, what do you mean you went on tour, Carl? What are you, what are you talking about? What does that, what does that even mean? Yeah. And I was such an, I think I was probably like looking back on it, I was probably a fairly boring kid in high school, but I think I was, I had to be an enigma. I mean, at least I look back on it now and feel that way. Um, you know, cause I did the normal school shit, you know, I got good grades. I got, I did the AP classes, but you know, I did my AP history paper on, you know, the CIA subversion of the black Panther party. And it's like, you know, just submitting this stuff and just like, just being a real combative kid when I wanted to be. Um, and a lot of my friends, you know, I had a couple friends from my, that went to my school, but most of my friends went to other high schools or graduated at that time. So I'd get my way through school, do what I had to do, and then go hang out with the people that I, you know, felt a kinship with. So I think, you know, just that existence was always just sort of, you know, it's like there's no way I could possibly describe, you know, while, while people that are doing, you know, high school football practice or whatever, like I'm playing a show with Gordon Soli motherfuckers in Cleveland. And like, I almost got hit in the head with a charcoal briquette, you know, like. It's just sort of like, how do you just, it's two completely different planets for most of normal society. And that, it's, there's a gravitation towards that, you know, especially if it's, you know, you live to tell the story. It's something the rest of the world. I mean, I feel like that's why everybody kind of falls into the punk and hardcore world at some degree. Listen, band merch is important. You need to be looking for the highest quality, officially licensed band merch around. And that is found at rockabilia.com. Use this code 100 words or less, and it gets you 10% off your order. You will be able to reap the benefits. And then this podcast reaps the benefits because Rockabilia says, you know what? Advertising works. But ultimately, I want you to have fun on their website. Go to rockabilia.com, find all of the latest and greatest band merch. They always have seasonal stuff going on. So we're in spooky season. So, of course, they have horror stuff front and center. And then as you get into the holidays, you know what you can start doing? buying gifts for friends and family. They ship it from the Midwest. It's all independently owned and ultimately the highest quality officially licensed stuff you can find. So again, use the promo code 100 words or less, 10% off your order, rockabilia.com, the place to go for all of your band merch. 
And was drums, I guess, the first thing that you went down the road on as far as, you know, a musical instrument is concerned? Or did you mess around with guitar first? Oh, I never, I, I didn't even learn how to, I've never learned how to play guitar. Drums were always the main thing for me. Um, you know, I don't even know. I mean, my mom like played concert drums and played timpani and stuff, but I just always wanted to be a drummer. I don't know why. Like I, I, you know, I always wanted to play drums and, uh, you know, it was great because every band, most bands were looking for a drummer. So, you know, even like when my first high school band was forming with some people that I had met, like they all could play guitar or bass, but they didn't have anybody who could play drums and hold the beat. And so in a way it allowed me just a real opportunity just to meet people. And uh, yeah, I've just always, always been drums, you know, guitar I only learned later on in life just so I could try to write my terrible ideas down and document them. So instead of like, you know, I was that typical drummer where I'd like mouth the parts of like, hey, so the part goes like this, that doesn't do anybody any good. So I had to learn how to like manifest that on an actual guitar, but I'm a terrible guitarist. Sure. Got it. Got it. And I'm sure your parents were thrilled at the amount of noise that you were making. They were actually pretty understanding about it. I mean, the other That's part of it though is once, once I started playing like organized songs and writing our own songs, like I started playing in a band when I was 14 and, you know, we played some really cool shows. Um, you know, again, no business playing those shows, but you know, we played some pretty cool stuff and like recorded demo tapes and you know had songs of you know fourteen and fifteen year old punk quality. But you know, they weren't bad. I mean, I listened. I found the songs not that long ago, and they're they're if you factor the handicap of like this is a bunch of fifteen year old kids, like you know, I feel like it's pretty good. But uh, when we started practicing, we were practicing at my friend's house because he had a bedroom in the basement so we could practice there. And so my parents never really had to deal with the noise. Oh, that that's so. really, that's, that's very important, especially too when wherever you end up practicing, which is usually not in a practice space with, you know, friends and families that are just accommodating. Uh, but yeah, the, I, I can understand where your parents were like, Oh, that's cool. Like Carl's playing drums. Like it's not in our house. Okay, great. Even better. <laughs> right. Right. And then I had, I had a, a girl that I was, in school with and her dad was like a session drummer and a gig drummer or whatever and just kind of did random stuff around town just playing in whatever bar band and he had a drum set and it was a he had an old uh, like a 66 rogers and i just remember there was one point where i was talking to i was talking to him about something and then he just offered to like let me play his his drum set and so it wasn't really like it wasn't really lessons it was more so like how to make all these individual drum things work and, uh, you know, and not having to worry about hitting too hard with your parents there. And so like, you know, he hated Nirvana. Like he was definitely like a classic rock dude, but like he had this big PA system and then he had the big over the ear headphones. And so like, I just remember like putting Nevermind on and just like learning those drum parts and like being able to learn how to make the right hand and the left hand and the right foot and the left foot all kind of sync up. So even then, like, as I was doing that awkward sort of you know, figuring these things out. Um, that wasn't at my parents' house either. So that's probably why they liked me being a drummer is because they never had to, I never thought about that. Like they never had to deal with the noise. Like, the noise was always at somebody else's house. Yeah. They're like, so, this is, this is great. Carl's passionate about something. And, uh, you know, we just get to, you know, he gets to come home for dinner and then everybody's happy. That's cool. Here, here I thought this whole time they were just like passively supporting me. And now I realized they were just happy. I was out of the house and not making noise in there. I gotta, I gotta give my parents a call about this. This is crazy. Absolutely. Sometimes it takes that uh, auditing of the past to understand. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. You're, you're turning into a therapist. I'm sorry about that. 
Yeah, no, I appreciate that. That's what I'm here for. <laughs> so uh, so I, I'm going to get, I mean, like you said, with your, your, you know, demo experience and first band uh, stuff, you know, playing uh, out, I, I guess I'm going to guess that like holding on was kind of your first, for lack of a better term, like serious band, the one that was, you know, signed and putting out records and stuff. Yeah. I mean, it was, it was just a, you know, for us, it was again, probably an opportunity. I mean, all the guys were, in their early twenties at the time. And when I first started playing with them, I was 16. And so that was just a facilitation. Like I could play drums and um, you know, I think about it too. Like the person who's pretty much the reason my life took the steps it took was, it was Adam Patterson who was playing drums at harvest at the time. Um, or he, he might, I think maybe it was shortly before he joined the band, but he was the first drummer in hope conspiracy. And, uh, he was just like always the most social, outgoing, friendly dude. And he would see me at shows by myself all the time. Cause at that point in time, like my friends were kind of getting into, you know, drinking more and just kind of being, you know, super punk dudes. And I was gravitating more towards punk and hardcore, you know, and like straight edge. And so for me, like the, the kind of world was just going to those shows by myself. So I just go to whatever hardcore shows were going on alone. And then Adam and I just started talking to me. And found out I played drums. He's like, are you any good? He's like, eh, I think I'm okay. He's like, I got friends who are starting a band looking for a drummer. You should meet them. And then that started the whole chain. And, uh, you know, it was also, there was never like any serious ambitions. I think it was just trying to do as much as we could. More as just like escapism. But, you know, there was, there was a lot of opportunities where that band could have broken up. Um, you know, there, was, there, were, there were other moments where Adam was also the one who, talked me into uh, auditioning for American Nightmare when they were looking for a drummer after they recorded background music. So he's always kind of like bounced. He's always bounced around the country and then like, Oh, you should do this. You should do that. Um, But yeah, I mean, yeah, it sounds like he's your manager in a way. (laughs) You know what? For him, it was just like, I think he was always just kind of looking out for me. You know what I mean? I think just because, you know, maybe he was that guy going to shows by himself at one point in time. I, I never really asked him about it and I never, I never really thought about it up until, you know, maybe it's like turning 40 and thinking about the past or whatever. But like, I never really thought about how important that one dude was in creating all of these doors opening up for me just one at a time. You know, it's never like, there's never a hundred doors opening up. It's like one that leads to one that leads to one that leads to one. And, uh, you know, he, he just, was there, you know, and yeah, helped connect awesome. me to these different people. And yeah, so holding on was cool. And like, it just it was such a unique experience because there wasn't any bands like us in Minneapolis at the time. And so, you know, I think we played every reach the sky show in Wisconsin or Minnesota, except for when they were on like the dropkick were tours. Um, Cause there's just legitimately no other bands that were our style at the time. Like they're just, it was, a, it was pure statistics that we got all these great shows. Um, you ha- you had the market so. corner. Well, it, it's, <laughs> I, I'm I'm glad you mentioned that because I do think that there was this real interesting, um, you know, I wouldn't even call it a movement, but just like coincidence that there were these bands that existed in pockets of the country that you know were either stylistically kind of the only thing going on, and like holding on was definitely that band in like the Midwest where it was just kind of like, hey, well, na- name one straight edge band in the Midwest. It's like ah. Like you just, and then it'd be like, oh yeah, holding on or whatever. But yeah, well, I think it, it was that, just it was just the hardcore world because I mean we could yeah. play with. I mean we played with Harvest and we played with Disembodied, you know. But like Minneapolis at that point, you know, you have Threadbare and you had 
you know, that whole scene that was getting fairly known in a, in a pocket of America, but it's like, you know, from Threadbare to, you know, I guess really the biggest one from that, that block would have been Threadbare Harvest and Disembodied, you know, I might be leaving somebody out, but that was pretty much the national hardcore stamp that everybody knew. And so for us, like we were social with those, we were friends with all of them, but we were just kind of did our own thing, you know? And so like, because after Harvest broke up, it's like, we got to play with Bane. We got to play with Reach and Sky. We got to play with all these bands. And again, it was just a lot of it was like, there's really only one fast hardcore band, you know? And then that was sort of the, the way that we were able to, you know, meeting the guys in Champion and meeting a Ram and those guys. It was just because it's like, well, we didn't play the show, but we would book it, you know? And yeah. uh, you just kind of become this. You're the sort, go-to, right. Over, yeah. over time, you just kind of become this this hub, you know, but, you know, we got to play with some, you know, we got to play with Harvest, we got to play with Bane, we got to play with Lysol, and we got to play with What Happens Next, and we played with Code 13, and so that part, and we played with the movie Life, and we played, you know what I mean, like, played with all these different bands, and uh, I kind of liked that, because we could fit on all those shows, you know? Um, yeah, oh, no, it's really, it, it, it's cool, because that, that, that time was also really important, because of the, like you said, kind of the diversity of the scene you could plug into a lot of different shows and it would be cool like that um when you started to you know you guys you know worked with bridge nine and started to you know actively uh tour and pursue these opportunities that you know a lot of bands don't get the opportunities to do how did the business implications of the side of the band kind of operate like did you care to be involved because you've always struck me as a person that you know understood the you know kind of machinations of being in a band um yeah so were you like did you enjoy i guess that aspect of the the band life stuff i didn't i don't really think that was ever really a consideration you know what i mean like i think at the time it was just sort of you know when we knew i guess the best way to describe is when we knew we were going to break up i remember telling chris because uh, we owed Bridge Nine some money, you know, between records and merch and whatever else, like we had a bill to them. And uh, you know, we had done it. We had done some shows with because Terror was getting that was like that was the the winter. It's so like two thousand early two thousand three, late two thousand two. That was when Terror was really starting to become like, you know, they came out of the, the they came out of the gates just all guns blazing. And so we played some shows with them, and I think that was one of those things where I realized it's like we're not like you know we don't have Scott Bungle in our band. Like there's a certain like presence that that band had. And like, you're like, that's what a, that's a fucking hardcore band that has their shit together. That's going to be able to take another step forward. And I think for us, it was just like, I don't know that that was ever any of our goals, you know? Um, so there wasn't really much of a, of an intention to do that. There wasn't really those moments. Just when we broke up, I told Chris, it was like, how much do we owe you? And he's like, Oh, you guys owe us whatever it was $2,000 or whatever the number was. And I remember being in his office in Boston and just setting down $2,000 in cash. I'm like, okay, so we're good, right? Yep, we're all level. We don't owe you any money. Yeah, we're breaking up in the fall. And it's just like the whole thing was just like making sure that our bills were paid and making sure people knew as far out as possible that something was going to change. And that's really, that was the extent of our business knowledge. I mean, there was no like financial discussions. There was no, we weren't sitting there hoping that like, you know, whoever equal vision or somebody was going to tap us on the shoulder. Like that was never a, never an idea that even came up, you know? Yeah. But I think yeah. that was also that also that, that same sort of, uh, you know, being outside of that while still wanting to try to figure out how the fuck to do a life that is based in music. 
I mean, that was easily one of the reasons why, like, when Martyr AD was looking for a drummer, I didn't know how to play double bass, but I was friends with all of them. I was like, well, you guys are having a hard time getting a drummer together. They were about to sign a Roadrunner, and I think they ended up, they had just chosen to sign a Victory instead. And uh, I was like, well, shit, you guys already have a Victory deal in the bag, and you need a drummer, and I can learn how to play double bass. Like, give me two weeks, and let's figure this out, you know, because that was a band that had those goals and that had those intentions. So like, I don't think I learned much about life or business, you know, at the time of holding on. But I think Martyr was the one where it's like, this was a band that was geared and trying to do that. And that's where I think I got the crash course, you know, 10 times over. Right. And that, that's a perfect segue. Not like you intended to do that, but just the, that idea of joining a band that was, you know, there was, like you said, a record deal in place, you know, momentum, there was excitement in speaking in general about the band. So did you, you really felt like you were kind of thrown at the deep end, not in a bad way, but just in a way where it's like, all right, well, here we go. Yeah. I mean, I think it was anything. It was just a challenge because what's, I mean, you know, I mean, they had the first drummer, Justin was the drummer for disembodied. So it made sense. And then they had some fill-ins. I mean, I think rap away from me did a tour for them. And then Jared from Seven Angels did some stuff with them. And it's like, you know, good luck following that dude. He was an insane drummer. But then uh, they had, they just we kept rotating between these fill-ins who were, had other other bands. And then they had this one dude who was just like this death metal drummer who was just, they played, I think, two shows with him. And it was just, a, it was awful, you know? And so, uh, you know, they had a lot of momentum and then they went about, eight or nine months where they couldn't do anything because they didn't have a drummer that they could rely on. And that's when I was just like, you know what? Fuck it. Like what's the worst that's going to happen? You know, I can learn how to play double bass and I just figured it out and, you know, just crash course it over two weeks and then called them up. It's like, can we give some of these songs a go and see what happens? And that's pretty much where it was. So that was as much just like cocky naivety as it was anything else. Cause it's like, again, it's just like, well, I can't do it, but I'll learn and give me two weeks. And they had two weeks to give. And then from there, the, you know, the, the life in that band really was just like, I'm just the drummer. Like, I'm not doing anything. I'm not talking to anybody. Like they had all their, their social lives and friends and all these people that they came across over, over a decade of being in music. And for me, I was just like, I was just happy to be there. But then the business side sort of came along with that over time, you know, for a variety of reasons. And that was when I started to kind of really learn what needed to happen on a day in day out basis. If you wanted to even try to survive Sure. And all, all the while, as you were pursuing this stuff, I'm guessing that you were basically just holding sort of, <clears throat> excuse me, some like, you know, transient jobs and just kind of, I mean, because I know that you did go to school and you have a degree and you're, you know, smart on paper. <laughs> but um, right. so w- were you were you kind of just like building your life around the fact that you wanted to figure out what touring was like and playing in bands was like? So I was, uh, I was, <laughs> I was a Radio Shack cell phone salesperson. That was my gig pretty much from 2001 up until really the 2004 touring schedule and Martyr really kicked off into full gear for about a year, about a year and a half until we broke up. Um, I was like anything in between, you know, weeks here, weeks there, weekends here, whatever. I would just go work at Radio Shack because at the time I was fluent in Spanish. And I was the only employee at the Mall of America who could translate the cell phone contracts in Spanish. And so I, uh, it was actually a pretty reliable gig. It was, it was uh, you know, not the coolest thing to be like, well, in the meantime, I work at Radio Shack. But, uh, 
yeah, that was my, that was how I sewed things together when I was not doing music. I wasn't, I never really had to bounce around from, you know, one warehouse job to the next. And, you know, I had a, I had a friend who worked at a factory that uh, just a warehouse where they bailed up clothes. Like you donate clothes to a charity, they bail them up and load them onto containers to go on planes. That's all he did was just bailing up clothes for 40 hours a week. And, wow. uh, you know, some of the odd jobs and, you know, temp jobs, just doing paper filing for the bank or whatever. I never had to do that. Um, you know, cause at the time I had a, I had the ability to just slide right into Radio Shack when I wanted to. So. Dude, that honestly, that, that was the dream of everybody that was touring at that time where it's just like, Hey, you know, I can leave for a month, month and a half. And I have a friend that covers my shifts. And then, you know, you land back home and you're just like, okay, cool. Like, yeah, I made $200 in the tour, if that. And uh, yeah, right. now I have a job, but you know, I have all these crazy road stories and show, shows that we play to, you know, four people or whatever. Yeah. I mean, it was the, the whole, the, the real operation of that just ended because I, uh, they changed managers at the store, you know? So we had done like a five week European tour and then we were supposed to be home for two weeks, I think maybe two weeks. And then we we're supposed to go on like an eight week tour with champion and agnostic front. And, uh, the band broke up three days before the tour started. And so when that happened, it was like, I got to figure something out. And then I called the, I called the store up to get the job back. And it was a different manager on the phone. It was like, shit, I, I, I didn't want to work. At, I didn't want to work at Radio Shack anyway. And so then I just had to kind of figure something else out. Um, yeah. No, uh, the, the meal, the meal ticket runs out at a, at a certain point. <laughs> right. Yeah. It, it would have been nice to have planned ahead for, you know, not having four months of, of income because we had that tour and then we we're going to do another tour, I think with bleeding through. And so, you know, once you, uh, once martyr was coming to its, uh, you know, logical conclusion and you were kind of figuring out next steps, I know that you went over to bridge nine as a label manager. And I, I'm sure that wasn't ever, I, I guess, a point of consideration of like working in the music industry, um, so did you even really know what like a label manager did at that point? Or were you just like, Oh yeah, I can organize stuff. It was pretty much like I can out hustle the next person. And the funny thing, the funny thing about it is that, um, I mean, Chris posted the job on the bridge nine board. Like it wasn't even like, it was sort of, it wasn't even, it wasn't even a, like a back room thing. Like I hadn't talked to him in years. You know what I mean? Like this would have been what 2006 when he posted the job. And holding on broke up in three, and so so I uh, I uh, sorry. Give me one. Give me one second. No okay. problem. Hi. Can Yeah, go for it. Okay. I'll make you dinner. Oh, Somebody <laughs> stepped on it and I oh, Welcome home. <laughs> the uh, after eighteen months of working from home, the wave off still doesn't work on nine year olds. No, it does, it does not. Yeah. It's like, can I, can I, like, oh, yeah, I'll make you dinner. She's more worried about getting on her video games. But, um, uh, yeah, so Chris posted the job on the Bridge Nine board, and I just sent him a message. It was like, hey, dude, you know, if you're looking for somebody, you know, you, at least the one thing you know about me is that I was in a band that sold a handful of records and I paid my bills. Like, that was my qualification. I paid sure. my bills. And, uh, you know, I was like, you can talk to these people that I've dealt with since then. And that was it. And I went out to Boston and you know, it was a weird time for him too. And, uh, 
you know, because the Red Sox had won that World Series in 04. And then, you know, 05 was really hard for him just because he had some distributor disagreements and some bands left that he wasn't anticipating. And so for him, I think he was just feeling a little jaded about it in general. And uh, it was just, I didn't have anything else that I was qualified to do really. You know, I'd spent a year working at a store that sold things on eBay for people, which oddly did prep me for e-commerce in a way I wasn't really thinking about at the time. But uh, it was just a way for me to do something connected to this world of music, you know, because I just hadn't gotten that out of my system. Right. Well, and I think, too, it's like you don't like as you are, you know, amassing these skills, not like we would ever say that when you're playing in bands, but like as you're developing these different disciplines and then once you take it to the the quote-unquote real world even if it is working at a record label be like oh yeah like this you know i would never have put this on my job description but like yes i do know logistics or whatever like it's just it's wild yeah and it's it also comes down to like i mean even those early days of bridge nine i mean yes i did drop out of business school but that was a very early lesson in like cash flow does not equal profit you know, like one of the most important business lessons you could ever have, which isn't, you know, there's probably full books written about it, that it's like, you know, 300 pages of how, you know, how to manage cash flow, this, that, and the other thing. But also the, the most important lesson for like a small independent business is just because you have a thousand dollars in your pocket does not mean you made a thousand dollars. And that was like, I still talk about that to this day, about how cash flow is not your profit. Do not. If you're playing a show and you have a thousand bucks in a bag, never think you have a thousand bucks to split up. And uh, it's amazing how many people don't get that lesson, you know, and sometimes it catches up to you and sometimes it doesn't. But that was probably the, that those early days. That was such a key thing because it was just it really was like a shoestring budget. I mean, I was I was not making serious money whatsoever. It was uh, I probably would have made more money working at a coffee shop or, you know, part time working at a coffee shop. but. Uh, you know, I didn't care, you know? So it's like, for me, it was like, I had an opportunity and I was going to make the most of it. And, you know, thankfully Chris was, uh, trusting, you know, cause I was, I was 24. And I think about some of these, these meetings that I was doing, like going down to New York and meeting with the distributors and doing all this shit. It's like, I'm a fucking 24 year old punk, you know? Right. Like, what am I, what am I doing here? You know? And I'm, I don't know if you ever had because you were at you were at Century Media, weren't you? At, you did Abacus, right? Uh, yes, I did. I, I mean, that wasn't my idea. I definitely was. Uh, one day I was working for Century Media, and the next day I woke up being like, "Hey, we have a hardcore imprint, and you're working on it." I'm like, "Oh, okay." Right. But yes, yeah, exactly, same thing. Right. So, but like Century Media, because Century Media had the same distributor as us for a while, because we were distributed by um, Carol. Right? Yeah. yeah. And so I remember going to those meetings and just you know realizing very quickly, it's like, oh shit, like I am. This is not like. Caroline that was putting out bad brains and stuff like this is <laughs> yeah. this is like a real music business company and uh yeah try know, to get just like try to just try to get hurt. people yeah try to get people in a I mean you, you saying that like triggers memories of like sitting in a you know meeting room trying to get people stoked on you know metalcore that clearly have <laughs> no context for that I mean, it was in some of those meetings that's, I, I just, I wonder what they thought. I mean, maybe they were just so glazed over that they just, you know, whatever, they were so used to it that it didn't register for them. But like trying to go into these meetings and like talking to them about have heart listening stations. And there's like, who, what, like, why, why, like, what is, this is like this, you want in the listening station. There was just, there was, there was support, you know, there were people who got it, 
But, uh, you know, at the same point in time, it's like there's a lot of people there who are just like, you know, selling whatever, you know, whatever was big at the time. I can't even think of what other stuff Caroline was working. But like, you know, it wasn't, let's just say it wasn't like the Hold Steady or whatever. The, the Kooks, I think, was their big featured release at the time. And, oh, yeah. you know, here we are trying to get people revved up about, you know, my first, I remember my first meeting in New York uh, was, so an outbreak had just come out and it's like trying to talk to these people in suits about like half heart and just really hoping that they didn't just call me out for like not knowing what I'm talking about. Like, I don't care if they like the music. I'm just like, I hope I get through this meeting standing. Like that's all I cared about. Um, right. Totally. <laughs> I didn't make myself look like a total fool here. Yeah. And then there's times like there's, there's a, a, a actually a longstanding girlfriend of a friend of mine. Um, and I'll, I'll actually, I'll, I'll just, I'll out her. Uh, Sarah, who's Mark Vieira's girlfriend, was in one of those meetings when I was trying to tell a bunch of people that uh, I remember saying out loud in a room full of people, and this would have been 2009 because we had that Strike Anywhere record that was coming out on Bridge Nine, and I was trying to get the sales team and the radio team excited about Strike Anywhere. And just the, the words Strike Anywhere is the next rise against came out of my mouth. And they were intentional words. Like I meant to say those things out loud. But I'm just like trying to give these people something to latch on to. And she was in the corner of the room and like her, like her eyebrow kind of curled up a little bit. Like, huh? Strike anywhere is the next rise against? Like that doesn't even make sense chronologically. And then after the meeting, we're talking and I just go up to her. I'm like, you, you know what we're talking about here, right? And she's like, yeah. <laughs> so I was like, thanks for, uh, thanks for not blowing up my spot on that one. Because it's just like trying to get there, you know. <laughs> trying to get this this distribution team all excited it's like you've heard of rise against but you haven't heard of strike anywhere but it's like if you're a, you know if you're like well connected to the punk and hardcore world it's like you know even the guys in rise against know like strike anywhere was a band before they were a band you know what i mean like just yep. the, the the calendar worked out that way so it was just kind of ironic to sit there like you know say that out loud very intentionally and, you know being totally like yes it's true but like there's a whole world of people who didn't know who strike anywhere was, but knew who rise against was. So it's like, why not try to rev them up that way? You know? Yeah, of course you were just trying to find a commonality for someone who didn't have the context for the band. You were just building it. So. Right. So yeah, but it was, I always, I definitely always felt like a fish out of water, but it was, uh, you know, it was a great experience for sure. Yeah, for sure. Um, and so, a few things I want to hit on before I let you go was the, uh, you know, you've been working at Kings Road, um, you know, which is a independent, uh, you know, merchandise company out that was obviously launched initially with the, um, you know, con- connected to Epitaph and everything. And yep. it's been really interesting to watch, you know, your side of the business grow and then, you know, get to a point where you are working with so many different bands. And like, I, I just remember when that started that notion of being able to be separate from a record label was always kind of like, I don't know if that's actually going to be able to happen, but it has happened. And um, (laughs) I'm sure throughout that process, there's been, you know, so many learning anecdotes of being like, Oh yes, like this is actually, you know, how this company should like look or run. Um, And I realize there's probably no like direct question in this, but um, was it, uh, I guess throughout the process, like, was it more overwhelming, I guess, at the beginning as everything was kind of getting set up or more overwhelming once you guys were kind of like separate from Epitaph or is it all overwhelming? 
I think it's always been one form of overwhelming or the next. Okay. Um, you know, I mean, I think from day one, it was like, you know, I'm coming out to California and Brett Gerwitz from Bad Religion and Epitaph Records told me I have two years to basically prove I'm worth something to get the job to stick around. Right. So like, it's like, okay, I've got a two year countdown. My wife is five months pregnant. I'm living in California in like a three bedroom apartment that was converted out of a garage. And I have two years to prove that this is something that can be something. And so when it just, I'm just so, you know, driven just to do something, you know? So we started out just doing e-commerce and web because that was where we had something to work with. I mean, Epitaph didn't really have a strong web store. And for me, that just felt criminal. And so we could do all these sort of, you know, vinyl represses for stuff that just hadn't been available for years. And uh, so there was, in a way, it was like a fairly easy kickoff point because like, yeah, there's some pre-orders and there was some other stuff. And then, you know, but what, what do you, how do you fill the time? There's 365 days in a year and you only have like a handful of pre-orders to work on. And so just getting the web stores built up and, you know, then that leads to this and then that leads to that. And then it's just, you add a couple bands, you make a couple mistakes, you learn how to course your way through those mistakes. You know, you, you navigate it all. And, you know, I would say it's always been one form of overwhelming or the next, <laughs> you know, right? Um, cause <laughs> yeah. it's just, cause it's, we've never, it's always been really steady. You know what I mean? Like it's always been a really steady growth. And I think, you know, at the time when, when Brett made the decision to really start a merchandising company, I mean, digital music wasn't really a thing. The only digital music was just, you know, LimeWire and illegal downloading, you know, and that like this is probably post Napster, but just, you know, easy, easy downloading and send space and all these other outlets where you could just get free music at the click of a button. And, uh, you know, Epitaph was kind of all music industry was kind of waning and, Bridge Nine really did survive off of our web store. And so I think that was something that they were trying to replicate on their part because, you know, Brett is such a smart business person and so willing to gamble on stuff. But, you know, he saw that there needed to be another outlet for that. And then, you know, as streaming and as the digital music kind of revolution came around for record labels, he was on the front end of all that stuff too. And so, you know, I think, uh, I was just, I can't think about how lucky I was to, to get that opportunity um, because he, he is patient too. Like he's not, he wasn't trying to make something that made money in two years. He just wanted to know that there was a business model that could survive in two years. And, sure. uh, you know, there wasn't that like, you know, two years or this is done. It's like, give us two years to just show that there's a pulse to this business. And then we'll see what comes from the next step. And talking 12 years later, it's still here, you know? Right. Yeah. That the, yeah. I mean, that's really cool that he was looking at it from the perspective of there's, you know, there's something there, whether or not it's, you know, kicked off, you know, two X growth, like that's not important. I mean, it's important that right. there is a light of sight towards it, but not the, you know, the, the whatever supercharged business. It's like, this is, this makes sense that we can have this service. So that's really cool. Yeah. And the, the, I mean, this sounds like a really oversimplified question, but just the, you know, the, the fact that you are not only still attached to the independent music scene and, you know, working um, with bands that you clearly still care about, but you, you know, you decided to do the, uh, you know, the old guy thing and start a band when you are clearly, you know, past the, uh, past the age where you should theoretically be, I guess, caring about it from that perspective. And of course, I'm oversimplifying it, but 
Um, well, you're dead on. <laughs> you're dead on. <laughs> but I, I just like, you know, I mean, all of us, I think that are, you know, lifers have that feeling of like, it doesn't matter what time we think of starting a band, like we will do it. It doesn't, who cares? But um, right. I, I, I guess the really simple question is like, why, you know, why do you still care not only to be in, like paying attention to independent music, but then create it as well? I don't know. I feel like it kind of came about organically. I mean, I never thought, I mean, I know I can speak for Matt too, because Matt are main singer and, and main songwriter and vocalist too. Um, you know, he played in bands for a long time as well and actually toured much harder and much longer than I did. And so I think both of us were kind of in that position of like, you know what, we kind of did it. We tried, we got it out of our system. You know, we have other things going on and that's cool. Like we were never sitting there feeling sort of like, oh man, I could have been a contender. You know, I, I could have been somebody like that was never like that feeling of, of, uh, you know, regret when it came to our bands. And I think it just sort of, you know, it's one of those things, man. It's as corny as it sounds. It just, if you had, if you wrote music and like the right catalyst comes into play, you realize how quickly, like it just never, it never leaves you. You know what I mean? Um, and even the, the, the simplest and dumbest scenario possible was we actually, we reunited, holding on reunited and Matt played bass. Uh, and it wasn't a holding on reunion. We played a Dillinger four, fourth of July show, which is like their big kind of blowout show where it's like one year they had like against me and, you know, lifter polar and hold steady and these big bands they'll fly in, um, you know, to play this Dillinger four weekend weekend of shows. And there was one very poorly thought out night where the idea came up to do a all straight edge cover band by people who had all broken edge, myself included. But it was like, we still like all those songs. And Patty and Eric from D4, like they all grew up in, you know, the late 80s youth crew scene. And, you know, they were in Chicago. I mean, Eric was in Billingsgate, which was the first, one of the first bands on Victory Records. And like, Patty always says, it's like, yeah, all the guys in the bands were straight edge, but all the roadies were getting drugs off of me. And so like, they were always connected to that world, always liked it, always revered those bands. They just weren't straight edge. And they, they were talking how, like, kind of like, you know, we're having some drinks and they were lamenting how they never had a straight edge band play Dillinger 4th of July. And I was like, we can fix that. And then, so just that simple process of just getting into the practice space, relearning and playing these songs that weren't even ours, almost as like, sort of like borderline Andy Kaufman-esque, like, you know, it's like, if you were there and you knew we were all in holding on, you'd be like, what the fuck? Like, what are these guys doing? But if you just knew these songs, you know, it's like, we're up there and we're, doing like legitimate renditions of these songs and it's sort of like tongue in cheek, but it's not at the same time. And that experience, Matt and I were just like, Oh, we should, let's play some songs, man. That was fun. You know, nothing more than that. And, uh, you know, and I think even this band for a while, like we're never taking it like crazy seriously. I would say that the, the best way to describe it is it's our, uh, you know, it's like our fucking bowling night or our softball team or something. But even if you do a bowling night or a softball team, like you still want it to be worth your time and you still want it to be worth the people who are working with you's time. And, you know, we had planned to do the record ourselves. And then, uh, you know, the songs found their way to a label in Europe who wanted to help us put the record out. It's like, cool. Like I my one of my first things I said to him was, I just don't want you to lose too much money. Like if you lose a little right. bit of money, you know, that going into a record label, there's going to be some things you win and some things, some things you lose. But like, I just don't want you to lose too much, you know. Yeah. Um, and there were cool. this to be a I mean, calculated, right? A calculated right. risk. 
Um, cause that, there's a lot of guilt that comes along with you having like this, you know, this project. And it's like, I, you know, it's very open with everybody. It's like, if we play 40 shows a year, that's a great year for us. You know, like we're not going to try to tour. We won't tour. You know, our ideal tour is maybe a Thursday night, but definitely a Friday and Saturday night and probably home on Sunday. Like that's a perfect tour. Um, you know, it's just like, that's just, that's the scale and the scope of the band. Everybody in the band is on the same page with that. Um, you know, cause we've all kind of, we all tried to cut it out in that world, you know, some people make it and some people don't, and some people keep pushing for it. And, you know, everybody kind of finds their ways, but it does feel weird sometimes to realize like, Oh yeah, we're the old guys now. Like we're, we're kind of in the middle now. Like, I feel like we're not quite old and we're not quite young. So we're, we're right in this little, no. this, this, this hover zone. But, uh, yeah, I just, don't I, think, I, just, I just don't think that matters anymore, you know? So No, I, I agree wholeheartedly, and I, I think that's one of those things. And not only do I agree wholeheartedly, because I also exist in a band and am around the same age as you, but just that, right. that notion that you, you can still be creative and creating something that will hold, hopefully hold relevance for people of all, you know, ages and shapes and sizes, where it's just like, yeah, like, we don't need to be this thing for you know this wide group of people we just want to be this small thing for people who randomly trip across it and are like oh this is really this is cool thanks for existing yeah and i I feel like for us like i'm i feel so fortunate to have even had this like looking back on the you know the window of the pandemic especially um i had something to focus on like aggressively focus on mentally you know what i mean and i had something that had like a purpose and a drive like something where it's like we could text each other and send ideas back and forth. And then Matt and I started getting back together and writing again, you know, everything kind of went to shit in March, but we started writing in person where we measured out the room and wore masks and did the whole thing. And uh, we started writing again in person in May of last year. And, uh, you know, he's a real estate agent with two younger kids and I've got two younger kids. And for both of us, it was a calculated move, but both of our wives were supportive of it. They knew that we weren't going to be screwing around. They knew that we weren't going to be like, you know, not that there was a ton to do outside anyway in Minneapolis, but they knew that that was going to be it and we were going to take it seriously. And, you know, I can't imagine the last year without it, you know? So at that point, like making it through the, I mean, we're still dealing with the pandemic, obviously, but making it through that first window of the confusion and the the doubt and the unknowns of that that. 2020 life that we had to endure and then you know everything that happened in minneapolis with the the murder of george floyd and and everything that transpired here in the month of may and june last year having something that was just unequivocally positive to focus on like i don't know what i would be like without that so if the record comes out and only a handful of people ever hear it and some of them think it's cool and some of them just click on by and never come back to it and they forget about it a day later that's fine you know there's that's as far as I'm concerned, this whole thing has served its purpose for us. And, you know, now we're on to writing more stuff and just trying to make it the best that we can, you know, but uh, yeah, no, that's, the I, goal. I, I, that's the goal. Right. That's the only goal. You know? right. <laughs> and, and I think that that's what is, is really cool to be able to see people who have gone, you know, on a variety of different paths, be able to come together and still create music that, you know, can be, relevant not only to today but then showcase the fact that like oh yeah we are comfortable you know playing our instruments and like we're not this you know terrible or how bad i was when i was you know 14 years old when you're playing your drums or whatever it's like there's just that 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 level of confidence that comes with you know being an adult and not feeling 
Like, oh, I don't care what this person thinks. Like, we just need to put this out. But I'm sure you probably feel that same thing, right? Because, I mean, you, you know, you spend time where you were in a band and I'm sure there was every hope or wish. I mean, maybe there wasn't. Maybe I'm projecting. But every band at some point when they're younger wants to see how far it can go. And no one really knows what that means. You know what I mean? Like no band that no band that's become super famous, you know, coming out of the punk world intended to end up there. You know, yep. I just the band like the bands that have survived and, and, and sustained themselves for a long period of time. They were all just doing it one step at a time. And, you know, you hit a point where it's like they're and it's natural. I, I know a lot of bands. I mean, I know I went through this myself. Where you're like, damn, like, I feel like if we would have done this decision or done that decision or whatever, like we could have been somebody, you know? Um, but then you hit a point where it's like, that's, that's okay. Like it didn't work out for us. There's a lot of talented people that aren't famous. There's a lot of talented bands. There's a lot of bands that write really important music that nobody knows. And yeah, but, the, but that's the, not the point. The, that's not the point. And getting to that point where everybody in the band recognizes that. And you know, it's, it's cool. Like we're going to be playing some shows coming up. They're going to be fun. That's all that matters, you know, and yep. that's, uh, it's kind of relieving to be in that spot. So it's, you want to care as much as possible and not care too much and still be proud of it and be comfortable with it. And it's like, that's kind of where we're all at. Yeah, with, no, it's beautiful. You know. Yeah, no, it's beautiful. Well, Carl, this is uh, great. Thank you for hanging out and uh, letting me poke around your life. I appreciate that. No, man, it's all good. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a legit fan of the podcast. So this was, uh, this was really cool. There you have it. Thank you very much, Carl, for bringing this idea to me and being like, you know what? Like, this is cool. It was funny because he was, um, he was like, you know, I don't want to, I don't want to like pitch myself because you're my friend. And then like, you know, sometimes like that's just what you got to do because sometimes when I am thinking of people to have on the show, I'm maybe not thinking about my closest friends. <laughs> And uh, I would consider Carl a close friend. So uh, when he brought this idea to me, I was like, oh, actually, that's a great idea, Carl. Let's go. So thank you very much to him. Thank you very much to his band for putting out good music. And like I said, check out Desperate Acts on anywhere that you consume music. And they're playing some shows. They're doing fun stuff. So uh, yeah, pay attention to them. Next week, I have a great guest. I mean, obviously, every week is a great guest. But uh, Chloe White, she plays in a band called Snarls, which I absolutely fell in love with recently put out some stuff on uh, take this to heart records a great independent record label out of the boston ish area but um this kind of sounds like i don't know just like great sort of like saddle creek adjacent indie rock and it kind of reminds me of rainer maria in a way i don't know there's really really cool stuff so i wanted to have them on the show and that's what i did so i had chloe from the band snarls and that's what's happening next week until then please be safe everybody